And so as we come to John 19, verse 30, we read, And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. Now, this is the sixth thing Jesus says from the cross, his sixth utterance. John gives us three of them. John was close enough, and he says he was there. He's going to tell us a few verses. I'm there. I was the witness to these things. And he was standing next to Mary, so he heard what Jesus said to her. And now he tells us these two other things. It's Luke that tells us his first saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's Luke then who who went and interviewed all of these people that were at the cross, who tells us that secondly, he's talked to the thief and said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. John tells us the third thing that he said was to himself and to his mother. And then it's Matthew and Mark who both tell us that Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This central cry. And then John standing there as Jesus comes out of the darkness for three hours says that Jesus says, I thirst. The other gospels tell us that somebody ran and got him this wine to give to him. But John alone tells us he asked. He said, I thirst. And then John tells us the, 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 this sixth thing that then he said, it is finished. And the last saying Luke again gives to us, and he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So these remarkable things recorded. And when John records and the Holy Spirit moves through him to write much later, he doesn't repeat the things in the earlier Gospels. He gives us three things we heard in none of their records. So it's interesting for us to watch this picture here. Jesus has been in the darkness. He paid a price there. Eternity will tell the story of that. He no doubt died eternally there. He, he had pled with the Father not to take the cup. He said, if there's any way, but not my will, thine be done. Three times. And we've been over this. He took the cup. He said to his disciples, shall I not take the cup that the Father's given to me? And in those three hours of darkness, in a great mystery that we will never understand, he died eternally. He died physically, as it were, to be realized after he comes out of the darkness, he died eternally. Uh, he said it is finished when he came out, remarkably. So as the darkness clears, John tells us there that Jesus said, I thirst. Now, it was more than just to satisfy his thirst. The agony of the cross, part of that is the thirst that goes with it. It says, Jesus, knowing in verse 28, all things were now accomplished. That's our word to telestai. When he cries in the next verse, it is finished. That's the same word as accomplished. So Jesus, it says there, he knows it's all finished. And he wants to cry that fact out loud. The problem is he's so dehydrated. It tells us, in fact, in Psalm 22, that his tongue was cleaving to his jaw. One of the doctors I read again said that the thirst 
and crucifixion becomes more agonizing than the spikes than the nails themselves. If you're there for hours, you're already dehydrated, your whole system is wearing, and all this while, hours after hours, you've been breathing with your mouth open, breathing heavily, and he says in Psalm 22 that, that you know, my, my mouth is dried like a pot shirt, my tongue like a pot shirt, a piece of clay pottery. This doctor said that the tongue long-term in, in crucifixion can become like a piece of wood. And Jesus said, my tongue, Psalm twenty-two fifteen, cleaveth to my jaw. It's, it's clung to it. It sticks to it. So as he comes out of the darkness, he says, Eli, Eli lama sabachthani, the people standing around think he's calling for Elijah because it's not clear. And then it says, knowing that all things are accomplished, that it's been paid in full, he knowing that it's finished, he, he gets out for someone close enough to hear, I thirst, no doubt the soldier's there. And when they gave them that sour wine, which is a typical drink of the Roman soldiers, on the sponge, it loosed his tongue. And then he leans back his head, no doubt looks to heaven, and cries to his father, it is finished. And then it says he bows his head, he gives up the ghost. Interesting picture. I will, we'll talk more about that next week. Luke says, Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit. But, you know, Jesus, his favorite title for himself through the four gospels is the son of man. Eighty times he calls himself the Son of Man. The first time he does it is in Matthew chapter 8. And there he, sa he says, he's talking to a man who says, I'll follow you anywhere. Let me first go bury my father. He said, look, you know, the foxes have their holes. The birds of the air have their nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said, this is not my environment. This is not my home. Foxes, they have their dens. Birds of the air, they have their nest. But the Son of Man, first time he calls himself that in the Gospels, Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I have no rest here. It's not my home. The second time that word is used about Jesus is in this verse where it says that he bowed his head, gave up the ghost. Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He finally laid his head somewhere. He bowed it. When, it. when his work was done, he bowed his head. It is finished. How remarkable. You know, John's the one who tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ. The Word was God. All things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. It was all made by him. That in him was the light of men. He said, and that Word became flesh. God became flesh, dwelled among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One eighteen, he says, no man at any time seen God, but Jesus Christ has, who's in the heart of God, has displayed him, exegeted him, brought him into the open so we can see God. All things were made by him, he says. So as we watch the Lord, six days of creation... And on the sixth day, he finished. He said it was finished. 
And he said it was good. It was very good. Now, on the sixth day, thousands of years later, he again says, it is finished. And he bows his head. This is the picture that is accessible to the mind of a child, but certainly beyond measurement for you and I. How remarkable. And the way it's written, it is finished. It's in the perfect tense. It means it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. That's good for me. I don't know about you, because he's talking about my sin and, and the debt that I owed. It is finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished. And his utterance then contains all of the other six things that he says. This was what was accomplished in the darkness. This is what he knew when he came out of the darkness, that everything was accomplished to Telestai. He asked for a drink so then he could scream that out loud to the Father. He wanted it heard of men, and he wanted it written down so we could sit here 2,000 years later and that, that cry to Telestai, paid in full, is still rumbling through a, a lost world. But that is why he came. That very reason is why he needed to be there. It's finished. He cries to the Father. Now, in that language, you know, it's one word again, to Telestai, uh, a common word. It is finished, gives the sense of it in English. It's a good translation. In the Greek... It was commonly used of a servant when he had finished his master's task. He would come back to the master and say, Tetelestai. In classical Greek, they find it everywhere. The pagan priest in the temple to Diana, the, you know, the, the Greek and Roman pantheon, all these strange gods, when they did something in the, the temple that, that was their task, they would say, Tetelestai, finished. Artists, whether they were sculptors or painters, from the Greek world and the Roman world, when they finished a piece, they would stand back and say, to Telestai, it is finished. And merchants, merchants, when your debt was paid, when you made your last payment to the merchant, he would give you a receipt. That receipt would read, to Telestai, the debt has been fully paid. And I like that. It's finished. It's accomplished. The debt has been fully paid. The debt stands fully paid. The debt always will be paid. I'm there. I like that. So, so here he says, it is finished. You know, he, he said, I thirst in the earlier verse. Here he didn't say, I'm finished. It is finished. He wasn't finished. He's not a martyr there. If he'd have screamed, I'm finished, people standing around would have believed it. And probably some of the people standing around heard him say, it is finished, thought he's dying. He's just, he's aware this is the end, you know. But Jesus said to us in chapter 10 of John's gospel, he said, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So it isn't like he's expiring, and, and, and the thing he cries out has something to do with that. It's not that at all. 
he, he lifts his head to the Father. He had told his disciples over and over and over, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The, 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 the chief priests, the elders, the, the, the Gentiles, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to rise again on the third day. He's not a subject here. He's not a martyr, certainly. He lifts his head to heaven and he cries to Telestai, it is finished. Not I'm finished, but it is. So that's the big question, you know. In our culture, in not the too recent past, we have actually political leaders who don't know what it is. Uh, here, we have opportunity to look at that when he cries, it is finished. Um, what are we talking about? Look, in, there are several, probably many angles to this. One of them is that every prophetic scripture about atonement is fulfilled here. It's done. It's come to its completion. There are other prophecies that deal about his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, and so forth. But every single prophecy that spoke of his atonement is fulfilled here. And he lifts his head to the Father and says, it's accomplished. It's done. It's paid in full. It's finished. Every type, every shadow, every foreshadow, every promise in regards to his sacrifice and our salvation, all in one person is satisfied at this point. Genesis, we, we go through them. You think of Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve sinned and God said, look, you know, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You know, he says to the serpent, and you shall wound his heel. He's going to crush your head. It's finished. It's finished. When we hear Isaiah say that he will be born of a virgin. I mean, you could just, there's myriads of these. It's finished. We hear Micah 5 say he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. You know, there'll be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth him whose goings forth are from everlasting and so forth. It is finished. When we hear Jesus, you know, talking about the fact that before Abraham was, I am. He's of the, the lineage of Abraham. He's of the seed of David. He's of the tribe of Judah. All of that fulfilled. Then we read through Psalm 22, everything it says about the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, all of those things. What, what One of the things, at least, that he is speaking about here is all of the prophetic scripture that spoke about the sacrifice, the atonement, it's finished. You know, he's never going to suffer again relative to that ever. The suffering is over. Never going to suffer again. And it is our substitute in my place, he's crying to tell us time. It is finished. Beautifully, I think, too, it here, it is finished. It, it's a picture of the perfect sacrifice, the one certainly accepted by God the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe but not perish, but have everlasting life. And God the Father, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the perfect sacrifice, everything has been kind of leaning in that direction. 
When Adam and Eve sin, God, it says, brings them coats of skins. He had to take the life of an animal to cover their sin, substitutionary atonement. We think of Abel's lamb, as he brings it, that his sacrifice was acceptable. Cain's was not. We think of Noah after the flood, sacrificing right away. We think of Abraham, the man of the tent and of the altar. And then on, you know, in Genesis 22, at the highest point, God reveals to Abraham what he's going to do on Mount Moriah, on Calvary, on Golgotha. And it says, when he was about to kill his son, the angel stayed his hand, and behold, a ram was caught in the thicket. And he had said to his son, God himself will provide the lamb. We think of the Passover night in Exodus chapter 12 and the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentils and the families preserved and the, you know, the, de- the angel of death going through the land of, of Egypt. You know, we think of Aaron and the priests and the Levites constantly sacrificing. We think of them offering every day the morning and the evening sacrifice. And, and it's interesting, as we, as we look at the, the description of the tabernacle and, and of the, the temple, Solomon's temple, as you read through the description of the tabernacle, you know, you may not be the kind of person that enjoys that. I have a problem. I like that kind of stuff. And you, you go through all of those details you read through about the, the altar, measurements, everything, the bronze laver, the curtains that hung around the tabernacle, the veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies, uh, the, the, the lampstand that was in there, the table of showbread. You read of all of these things, and, and the detail's incredible, but there's not a chair. There's not a bench. There's nothing. Because their work is never done. They're, no, they're never going to sit down. That's never going to happen. But Jesus did. We're told this in Hebrews. It says, every priest standeth. Never sitting down. Standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice. The idea of the same sacrifice over and over. Which can never Take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. It's finished. He took a seat. It's done. It's finished. And he says there, from henceforth, he's expecting his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected. That's a perfect tense. He, he has perfected that we remain perfect forever. Them that are sanctified, passive, present, them that are in the process of being sanctified, not by their own work, but by his. So this is the one who came and he sat down. He's the perfect sacrifice when he is offered himself being both priest and lamb, remarkably. The work is finished. Again, the book of Hebrews says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is the perfect sacrifice that's offered here. It is finished. Part of that it 
is this perfect sacrifice offered. <clears throat> and when he dies there on the cross, the other Gospels tell us the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. That's part of next week if the Lord tarries there. But the idea is that veil, when it was torn, the idea is no more sacrifice. No need for sacrifice. The veil is torn, no more sacrifice. Everybody has access to, to God through the Lamb that was slain, this perfect sacrifice that was offered. I think also it is finished. Now, in eternity, we're going to be realizing every, all the tendrils, everything that's attached to this. But there was a conflict that was finished as well that began, you know, in Eden. Satan in Ezekiel 28 is described in Eden, in his unfallen state and in his beauty. But Isaiah tells us in chapter 14 that Lucifer was lifted up with pride and he said, I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm going to stand, you know, in the congregation of the Most High. I'm going to sit on the sides of the mountain in the north. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And in that there was pride and envy because there was only one creature like the Most High. And that was the image bearer, Adam and Eve. Creating God's image and likeness, not the cherubim, not the angels. So Lucifer lifts himself up and said, well, I'm going to be like the Most High. And he's cast down. And then when he comes to Eve to tempt her, he says, hey, God said, don't eat this. He knows the day you eat it, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. He's holding out. That's how he fell. And he hates humankind. And Eve said, no, no, you know, we're not supposed to eat it. Neither are we supposed to touch it. Because in the day we do that, we'll surely die. Now, God didn't tell Adam. God had taken Adam aside, showed him the garden. Lord tarries one up in Genesis. All of the beauty, the unimaginable acreage, mile after mile, of the most beautiful foliage and trees and fruit and things he could ever imagine. And God said, but there's one tree that I don't want you to mess with. And of course, like us, Adam said, where's that one? <clears throat> he said, it's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So Eve must have come to him and he said, yeah, it's, it's there. Can we look at it? No, don't look at it. Don't bother. We can't eat. Don't eat it. We can't touch it. No, don't touch it. God didn't say that. Adam must have said that to her. Because when she says to Satan, we can't eat it, we can't touch it. You know, because the day we eat thereof, you shall surely die. And Satan lies and says to her, you shall not surely die. But you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And he tempted her. And she died. And Adam entered into the process. And he died. And Satan wants humankind dead before they reach salvation. Because he hates man, because he's an image bearer. Understand, you know, we, we're caught up in things, you know, in this world. I mean, I'm thinking about the eagles and, you know, those things go around in my mind, you know. And can't lose today. Just, you know, I, I get caught up on things on the horizontal. But there is, beyond all of this stuff that our minds track on, there is a conflict that's going on. 
And there is someone who hates image bearers. And sometimes you and I these days should be able to sense the darkness behind the things that are going on around us. And Satan wants human beings to commit suicide. He wants them on trank. He wants them killing themselves with drugs. He wants them hating each other because of the color of their skin. He wants them shooting each other down in the streets. He wants them dying and their blood running into the sand on the battlefield. And he laughs out loud as the blood of an image bearer is shed. And that image bearer has not come to know the love of God. He hates. We look at all this insanity. with This strange, not only strange things people are doing, but how strange the people are who are doing the strange things. And they're dead inside. They're empty. They're going out on this limb like this. They've tried everything else. Now let's try this. And, and, and they're empty. They're dead. And Satan wants it that way. But there's been victory. It tells us this in Colossians. It says, you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, Satan and his hordes, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in regards to what you eat or you drink, respect to a holiday or a moon or a Sabbath, those are just a shadow of things to come. Christ is the body. You know, we're told clearly that when Christ ascended, he led captivity captive. Not captives. Captivity itself. And that principalities and powers saw his glory and they were displayed for what they were. It is finished. The conflict that had taken place with the great bulls of Bashan surrounding the cross, trying to keep... Christ dead, Satan having the keys of hell and death. Christ is raised. He has had victory. He tells us of himself in Revelation chapter 1, I am he that liveth, is living, and was dead. Literally, I became dead. It was his will. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. That conflict was settled there. Look, Satan can condemn you. Satan come and he can lie and tell you God doesn't love you. He can come and make you feel miserable about your failings and the things you might do wrong. He can try to convince you to take your life because of something going on that's just frustrating or you feel hopeless. He can do all of those things. He's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. But it is finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished. The price has been paid. The debt is over. Christ has taken care of that for all of us. But the problem is, of course, I feel guilt. I'm confessing that. I do. I do something wrong. I say something I shouldn't say. I'm mean to someone I shouldn't be mean to. 
maybe I'm married to that person, you know, just, you know, I get in an argument with somebody, you know, we can let ourselves get into a place where we're acting in a way that we shouldn't act as Christians. And we come out of that, we have this sense of guilt, then we try to make amends. You know, maybe I need my conscience. I need to shut it up. It's bothering me. You know, I'm going to be a goody two shoes today and a goody two shoes tomorrow and a goody two days the next day. I'll put stars on the refrigerator and then maybe God will love me again. It's finished. It's finished. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. But it's done. Redemption of the soul is a finished work. Redemption of your soul has been paid in full. It stands paid in full. It always will be paid in full. Your sins. Your sins. You weren't even born yet. Today, tomorrow, your past, It's been paid for. It stands paid for. It will always be paid for if you're a child of God. Always. But the way we are, even as disciples, they watched him do miracles and stuff. And they came to him and said, Lord, how do we work the works of God? And Jesus says in John chapter 6, this is the work of God. That you believe on him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. That you believe on him whom he has sent. It's enough for me to do that every day when I wake up and look in the mirror. I have a full day's task to believe on the one whom he has sent to pay for my sins and to give me freedom. The rich young ruler, when he comes, he says, you know, what do I do? He says, keep the Lord Moses. And he goes through the, you know, the second t- table and he says, I've done all that. Then he goes to the first table and says, well, then get rid of everything. Come follow me. And he said, what must I do? We're like that. On the, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches, the unsaved crowds are there. They, they come under conviction. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And he tells them they have to believe on Christ and trust. They'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and turn away from the insanity of their generation. The idea is this. <clears throat> it is finished. To add to it takes away from it. If you think you can perfect it, you make Jesus a liar on the cross. Because there he said, it is finished, it stands finished, it will always be finished. But Christians, we can be legalistic and look up and down at other people, and this one's really, you know, I'm kind of there, I idolize them, and this one's a jerk, I'm glad I'm not like them. You Are you kidding me? The price that had to be paid, what had to be settled between sinful human beings and a holy God. And all we can do, like Paul says, those who compare themselves among themselves, they're not wise. They're not. Isaiah, Daniel, John, when they saw the Lord, they fell down like dead men. That's the comparison. That's the image we're being conformed into. You're not being conformed in the image of the guy sitting next to you. Thank goodness. But we can tend to be judgmental. You think of what he's done to forgive us. Look, we can't add to it. You try to add to it, you're taking away from it. You're detracting from what's been finished. Because John understood. 
He told us in the beginning was, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He understood who was hanging on the cross. Or he came to understand. He would write and tell us in Revelation chapter 2 that his eyes were like a flame of fire. His breastplate of, of brass shone. His countenance was like the sun. A two-edged sword went out of his mouth. His feet were like burning brass. That he stood there. And John said, I fell down like a dead man. John understands that's who was on the cross. That's who was on the cross. And the person who died on the cross was almighty, all-powerful, eternal, omnipotent, Oh, he was God. He paid an eternal price. So now he can say to you and I, it is finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished because the price I paid was eternal. You're just messing up temporarily. But the price is eternal. And any, you know, any disparity you might see between your failings and what God wants can't even be compared to the disparity of who God was in his glory. And when he hung on that cross, the Father lays on him the iniquity of us all. And he suffers eternally in that darkness on our behalf. That disparity between the very nature and character of a holy God who travels through time and eternity to come and bear in his own being our sins and suffer our eternal suffering. The difference between those things is way more dramatic than the difference between you and your stupid sins and your forgiveness. And when he said it is finished, it was Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and power who died in your place there. And when he paid the price, he paid an eternal price. And it's done. It's done. How remarkable. How remarkable. Some of you here today, look, you're under condemnation. There is condemnation from the devil. You can always can tell what that is because condemnation from the devil will seek to drive you away from Jesus Christ. Conviction of the Holy Spirit will drive you to Jesus Christ. But Satan comes and he lies to us. God's done with us. You didn't just sin. You sinned against light. Who do you think you are? You knew better. You're one of God's children. You acted like that. And he will try to condemn you. Get a t-shirt. It is finished. It stands finished. It will always be finished. So shut up. Right? He's the accuser of the brethren. But when I think of that, I think, you know, how can we not forgive one another? If he's done that, the eternal, holy, omnipotent God being defiled beyond what defiling is in our thoughts and our comprehension. He sets the example not for our salvation, but just of love, to love one another, to care for one another in a world where Satan hates us. And he's paid the price. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that of everything in heaven and on earth and on earth, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wonderful, isn't you know, John says, you know, and and look, we make mistakes, and if you are determined to be rebellious, you will get a whooping. Because God loves you. The punishment's over. Jesus looked at He ain't going to punish you, but he, you're going to get chastened. You're going to get spanked divinely, whatever that means in your life. And it ain't fun, but it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness and it proves that he loves you. I don't know about you. One of the things I realized early on is now that I'm God's kid, I can't get away with nothing. I used to get away with all kinds of things before I was saved. Then you get saved, realize I can't get away with nothing. And then he busts me all the time. Because he loves me. And he chastens us because he loves us. He doesn't punish us. That is finished. That punishment stands finished. And that punishment of sin always will be finished. And it... finishes demonstrating to us a perfect love of a holy God who could put his arms around us for no other reason except that work of bearing our sin on the cross was complete. Sit with that. We can talk about that a thousand years from now in heaven or 10,000 years from now. You know, it's, it's infinite. It goes on forever and forever. So the, the simplicity of it, Jesus says, a child can take hold of that. The depth and the power and the beauty of it is immeasurable at the same time. I encourage you, if you're here today and you're under the condemnation of the devil, You've blown it. You've done something wrong. You feel like you've worn out God's love. God's love and the blood of Christ have gone further than you are able to go. And God will chasten you if you attempt to prove me wrong. Because he loves you. Because the price has been paid in full. For your sin, your salvation, you can't add to it. If you try to add to it, you take away from it. Look, Kathy and I have been through church systems where it's Jesus and. Jesus and you need to do this. Jesus and you need to do that. Jesus and you have to do this. Jesus, you know, if you try to add to it, you actually take away from it. From it. It is finished. Don't add to it. Taking away from it. Or substituting, substituting anything for it. You guys know what it means, right? Four of us. That's good. That's more progress than we see on some Sundays. Look, this is, this is a, a love that we receive by faith. Because it doesn't exist in, in time and space. The only time it ever did was on that cross. This is a love that no other human being can give to another. This is a love that, that, that we can only enjoy if we step out of the boat onto the water. 
It's a love we don't deserve and we can't earn. We can never be worthy of. But it comes to us freely by God the Father through the completed work of his Son on the cross, looking to him in heaven and saying, Father, it is finished. It is finished. And the Father saying, John, did you hear that? Uh-huh. Write it down and pass it down to Calvary Chapel. I want them to know it's done. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we look into these things and Lord, we can laugh. We can, Lord, we, the, there's humor in our own, Lord, density sometimes. But these are things that we know when heaven and earth have passed away, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, when we have been completely set free from our sinful nature and the fall of Adam the human race, when all of that is behind us, when we are untouchable in regards to any of that, we know that we'll still, at that point, be learning and be probably more amazed than ever that you died for us, what you suffered for us. Lord, give us that assurance, those here that are condemned, Lord, speak to their hearts today. Those, Lord, that uh, think that they, they, they can use this as a license to go do whatever they want to do, Lord, show them the cost and the naivety of that. But, Lord, lead us, shepherd us, care for us, renew us, strengthen us. We're your own, bought with a price fully paid for. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.